As the children are being dismissed, please turn your Bibles back to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, you can find it on 901. We considered only verses 1 through 3 last week. Let's see if we can cover the whole of 1 through 6 this week. John 14, 1 through 6. This pivotal passage that begins with the words of comfort that in all honesty, that for me are sometimes words of trouble. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Trust in God. Believe or trust also in me. How was your heart this week? Troubled at times? I think mine was. Preached a whole long sermon on trust as trouble solution. I wrote a whole long email about prayer as trouble solution, and yet I still dealt with the struggle of trouble all week. Why is that? How is that? And how can Christ come to us in the midst of our trouble and say, let not your hearts be troubled? What a word. I've been thinking a lot about something that C.S. Lewis wrote in a letter to a friend. He wrote how, how amazing it is that we can so often so easily believe that we believe what really in our hearts we don't really believe. Did you follow that? It's easy to believe that we believe what we don't actually really believe. And I believe that sadly too often characterizes much of the Christian life for many of us. It is easy to say that I believe that trust is the solution to trouble, but do I really believe it? Like I struggle to believe it. In Christ, however, that realization, though, does not drive me to despair. It actually drives me to, to press on all the more, further up and further in, if we want to stick with our Lewis for I believe that theology and doctrine are eminently practical. The problem is never the truth. The problem is always my understanding of and application of and trust of the truth. And so last week we tried to consider how we take that truth practically and apply it to the troubles of our life. I was working on doing that all week. I still have much to learn. But today we come to the truth who is also the life, who thus is also then the way. And I hope to help us to see how practical this is, how practical he is for the everyday troubles of your life. There is, there's nothing more practical than a person. There's nothing more relevant and transforming than relationship with a person. How much more then than with the person? Can Jesus Christ, his person and work, and your understanding and knowledge of him, can actually reading about him in a book and praying to him in the quiet of your heart, can that really actually help you face the troubles that so trouble your heart? I believe, my only hope is that I believe that he can. And I am ever so painfully, slowly learning this truth and how it applies to my troubles and my often troubled heart. But we've got to get him right first. Maybe part of our trouble is still a lingering trouble with some of what he claims about himself. For it is not until you can truly see him for who he truly is and trust him in the truth of his person and work that you will begin to find rest for your troubled heart. That's why what was said only a few years ago, just actually a couple of miles from here in one of the, the largest churches in our city was such a tragedy. 
This is a church of over 10,000 members, so let's be honest, there are a lot of things that this guy is good at that I am not. Uh, maybe this is just insecure jealousy, I don't know. Uh, but, but maybe not, because the so-called pastor of one of the largest churches in our city stood up just a few years ago and said from the pulpit, there was a time when you would see people in the pulpit say, well, if you don't believe in Jesus, you are going to hell. That's insanity in many ways. Because that is not what Jesus even believes. And so the key is you just believe in God. And whatever your path is to God, I celebrate that. Personally, I celebrate that. It's the pulpit of one of the largest churches in our city. And personally, I do not celebrate that. I cannot celebrate that. Because of what Christ claims so clearly in our passage today. I am the way and the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And there is no statement, there is no claim of Christ that is more controversial than that one today. It is a claim of absolute exclusivity. And so while it should sadden us, it should not surprise us that when we see churches increasingly caving to the pressure to conform to the culture on what seems to be smaller things, well, we end up actually seeing it, seeing it cave even on this core foundational main thing. This is a truth that if you remove, you no longer have Christianity, and you no longer have Christ, and you no longer have any comfort for your troubled soul. And so we must consider this claim today that is so controversial, that is so directly contradicted from Christian pulpits by men who claim to speak for Christ. Side note, that guy did go to Duke, so that's, you know, I'm, I'm just saying. Right. Sorry, couldn't resist. But I hopefully don't need to be all that concerned that many of you are going to deny the exclusivity of Christ and argue that Muhammad is another legitimate way or Joseph Smith is another legitimate way. But maybe, maybe some of our troubles are rooted in our insistence to still try and make another way or our own way and not entirely trust in Christ's way and Christ as the only way for us to find life objectively, eternally, but maybe even subjectively in this life. Maybe our troubles is we don't quite fully believe that he is the only way to that full life that we're all seeking. So this morning, let's be confronted with the exclusive claims of Christ. Let's seek to understand and appreciate who he claims to be and what he claims to do. And in him, in better knowing him and trusting him, find comfort for our troubled hearts. Five points. Uh, we're going to have to fly through them. Uh, Jesus loves the definite article here. You know what the definite article is. The is a definite article. We'll talk about that. So I want to emphasize that in our outline. So we're going to consider first the Father and then the way, the truth, the life. And then I want us to close with the, the trust. What does it really look like to trust this Christ? Let me read the text. We are seeking true comfort for our often truly troubled hearts in the one true Christ. John chapter 14. I'll be reading verses 1 through 6. I encourage you to pay attention. This is what God wants to say to you on this very day. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, 
that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you would bow with me, let's go to the Lord. Let's ask for his help in this time. Let's pray. Father, you are life. You are the God of life in whom um, we find our fulfillment, our identity, our joy, our peace, our everything. Father, we so frequently do not believe that. We so frequently do not live as if we believe that, as if life was truly found in communion with you. Father, help us to believe that this morning. Help what Christ says to us here so clearly in your living and active word. Help this to draw our attention and our affection to Jesus. Father, I pray that Jesus would be a trouble, a comfort to troubled hearts, Lord. I pray that Jesus would be a trouble to unnecessarily and unrightly comforted hearts who have not yet found the forgiveness and the life and the peace that is to be found only in him. Father, these things are only found as we come to see Jesus for who he is and and understand what he has done and trust him. Father, help us. I cannot do that in myself. I cannot do that in anyone in this room. But Father, you, by your spirit, can do great things through your wonderful word. So Father, please help me. Please work now through your word. Please show us Christ. We ask this all in his name. Amen. All right, point number one. I want to pick back up on a few things from verses one through three. We'll do so by starting with the Father. Remember, Jesus in these chapters, is, he's preparing his disciples for his departure. That's a hard and heavy thing. Now, these men, we have 11 now. Judas has left. These, these 11 men have given up everything to follow Jesus. They've given their lives to follow Jesus. They are believing that he is the promised one, the Messiah. And now all of a sudden he's telling them that he's going. And that where he is going, they cannot follow. And so they are understandably troubled. I'm departing. My departure is my death. Oh, by the way, one of you is going to betray me to that death, and you, Peter, are going to deny me before that death. Let not your hearts be troubled. So, okay, let's let's be clear. The context in which he commands them to not be troubled is a whole lot of trouble. And so how could they possibly not be troubled? How could you possibly not be troubled in light of all the trouble that you may be facing. And this is where we focused last week. Jesus tells us how. And quite simply, he says, believe. And we argued that the emphasis there is on the, the trust component of faith. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Yes, there is trouble. Of course there is trouble. The Bible never dismisses or diminishes our trouble. It looks it in the face and says there's trouble. Face that trouble by trusting me. But Jesus does even more than that. He doesn't just leave us at that. He doesn't just say, I trust me. No, he tells us in great detail and gives us great reason why we can and should trust him. And we argued last week that home was one of the greatest reasons that you can trust him. Heaven, eternity. And we simply do not think enough about heaven and eternity. If you want a wonderful exposition of it, go back and read, listen to Sunday School from from this morning. It's fantastic. 
We focus so much on what we are rescued from, as we should. We shouldn't do that any less than we do. We're about to do that in a few minutes. But what we see Christ do here first is in the midst of their trouble. His focus is on what they are saved for or to. He directs their attention in verse 2 to the Father's house, to heaven. And the fact that Christ is going there to prepare a place for them and will come again to take them and us to himself, to home. And there, there, there's so much comfort to be found here. But we have largely lost the comfort of heaven and eternity. We're kind of embarrassed by it. We don't really talk about it. We don't really know what to do with it. We know little of how that day helps us face this day. I made the mistake of, of going off the cuff in our benediction last week and complaining about the claim that some people are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. I couldn't disagree with that idea any more than I do. I don't know anyone. I don't know a single person that is too heavenly minded. I've never met one. Or even heavenly minded enough. Our problem is the exact opposite, that we are so earthly Minded That we pay almost no mind to heavenly things. And yet here in the face of earthly troubles, we see Christ direct their eyes up and ahead. He's directing their attention beyond the impending imminent trouble to the promise and guarantee of heaven and home. We see Paul say in Colossians 3.10, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. What about Ephesians 2? There's this little part in the middle of the, the wonderful Ephesians 2 that we pay little attention to. We know and love verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And we often just kind of skip down to verses 8 and 9 and the grace and the saved again. Don't forget verse 6. He's done this. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Man, what, what does that mean? Why set your mind on things that are above? For in a sense, that's where you already are in Christ. We are so united to him. Here's where union with Christ is so important. We're so united to him by grace through Faith, our union with him is so wonderfully mysterious but real that there is a sense in which we are already seated with him in the heavenly places. That's our hope. That's our home. That's our identity. Face your now in light of your then. We must learn to deal with our earthly troubles in light of our heavenly hope. And we have to learn to do so in light of the fact of God's good, meticulous providence in all things the good God who has promised to work all things for our good must then always be doing something good for us in all of our troubles everything could change if we could believe that fact our problem is that we just don't really believe that and don't really trust him but this is absolutely critical to the Christian life I brought my copy of Calvin's a little book on the Christian life with me. Somebody stole it. It's gone. I don't know where it went. Um, so if you stole my book, give it back. Um, I was going to show it to you. And me. Oh, is it back there? It's back there. I left it. Sorry. They didn't steal it. I left it. Um, I, I, keep remind, I keep telling you, encouraging you to, to read this book. We so struggle with the practical aspect of the Christian life, and there's been no better book written 
than Calvin's little book on the Christian life. I, I got to read for a second um, from it. Try to pay attention to what he says. This is so important. This is how those who have gone before us used to speak and think. We don't speak and think like this anymore. But in the middle of the book, Calvin writes this. He says, in whatever trouble, we're talking about trouble. Some of you are facing trouble right now. He says, in whatever trouble comes to us, we should always set our eyes on God's purpose to train us to think little of this present life and inspire us to think more about the future life. For God knows well that we are greatly inclined to love this world. Thus, he uses the best means to draw us back and shake us from our slumber so that we don't become entirely stuck in the mire of our love for this world. We all throughout our lives want to act as though we are longing for heavenly immortality and striving urgently after it, but examine the plans, pursuits, and actions of anyone you wish, and you will find them to be almost entirely earthly. Thus we see our stupidity. Our minds, having been dulled by the blinding glare of empty wealth, power, and honor, can see no further than these things, and our hearts Burdened with greed, ambition, and lust for gain can rise no higher than these things. In some, our entire soul, entangled in the enticements of the flesh, seeks its entire happiness on earth. Listen, this is my problem. It is my problem. My lingering love for the things of the world. My lingering earthly mindedness that fixes me so much on this that I can so forget that. And so Calvin continues, in the end, we rightly profit from the discipline of the cross when we learn that this life considered in itself is troubled, turbulent, attended by many miseries and never entirely happy. And that whatever things we consider good in this life are uncertain, passing, vain, and spoiled because they're always mixed with many evils. And from this, we likewise conclude that we should expect and hope for nothing other than trouble in this life. And that we should set our eyes on heaven where we expect our crown. So indeed, we ought to realize that our soul will never seriously rise to the desire and contemplation of the future life until they've been soaked in scorn for this present life. Those are hard words. But I believe those are very biblical words that we need. We, I, am still so prone to seek my comfort and to seek comfort for my troubled heart in improved circumstances and the things of the world. And it's because I do not yet fully trust Christ on this point. But let's be clear. He does not comfort his disciples by easing their troubled circumstances. Oh, wait. Sorry, guys. I see that you're troubled. Never mind. I'm not going to depart and die. You're not going to abandon me. You're not going to end up persecuted and in prison and all dying for me. That's how we want to be comforted. That's not how Christ comforts. Don't be troubled. There are very troubling circumstances to come. Trust me. Trust me. I am working on your behalf. I am preparing the way home for you. I am doing all that is required to guarantee you heaven and eternity, and take you to the Father himself. Trust me. It really is. I know I said it's not easy, but it really is simple. Trust really is the solution to our trouble, but it only works on his terms. He is the Lord. He sets the terms. And he is desperately trying to get us to take our eyes off of ourself, 
off of life and this world, off of what we have determined and declared and said, I cannot and will not be happy unless I have this thing. And he is telling us that he has such bigger and better things for us. Eternity. Reconciliation with the Father. The one, Peter mentioned it this morning, Psalm 16, in whose presence is fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. How good is this Christ? The thing he is doing for us is about full joy and forever pleasure. Trust him that he knows where it is to be found and it's not here. It's not in yourself. It's in heaven. And it's with the Father. And so point number two. The Father is the goal. If the Father is full joy and forever pleasure, deal. That sounds great. Sign me up. Tell me how to get there. Show me the way to that blessed eternity. Look at verse 4. Look what Jesus says. And you know the way to where I am going. Do we? Verse 5. Good old Thomas, so often speaking for the rest of us. Verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? It makes sense, right? If you don't know the destination, there's no way you can know the way to that destination. For for that's what a way is, right? A way is a path. A way is the course or the route between one point and another. This, This is how you get from A to B, from here to there. And so if you look at it, the contrast between four and five is a little bit humorous. You know the way. Uh, no, we don't. <laughs> What's going on? Is, is Jesus wrong? Is he mistaken about what they know? Well, not at all, for this is precisely his point. It's not what they know. This is what he's trying to draw their attention. It's not what they know. It's who they know. And they know him. And he's trying to reveal to them and make it clear to them that in knowing him, they do know the way. And so he makes that clear in the big idea of this section, maybe the big idea of the whole book. This is one of John's summary, core statements. This is so important. Verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. And I am, when we come to a verse like that, just somewhat at a loss. This is, just, this is one of those statements that is so big and so profound and important that we could spend years on it. I have... 30 minutes. Where to begin? What do we do with just a little bit of time? Well, we've got three big nouns there that serve as our descriptors. Those are our points, uh, two through four. They're telling us something about who Jesus is. We've got the three definite articles before each one, the, the, the. And then we've got the verb. We've got I am. So let's, let's run through those in reverse order. Let's start with the I am. And we have seen this before. Remember, this is I am statement number six out of seven. These are identity claims of Christ. Here is who I am. Here is what I am like. But remember, it's actually even more than that. These are of extra significance because of how they are grammatically constructed. Because Remember, you get into the Greek and the grammar and they're a bit strange and redundant. In the Greek, to just say I am, you use one word, you say I me, E-I-M-I, I me. For example, in the wonderful Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. 
for your souls. I am. All you need to say it is that one word, that one verb that includes the subject. I am. But here in our text and throughout John, Jesus adds a pronoun to that verb that already includes the subject. Jesus adds this ego, which means I, and then he adds that in front of the verb, which means I am. And so literally in the Greek, it says I, I am. That's weird. It's not necessary. Why? Well, we because Jesus is seeking to make the biggest claim possible. And remember, this is most clear back in John 8, 58, where Jesus has said to the Jews, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, grammatically, we'd expect I was, not what he says, before Abraham was, ego, I, me, I am, period. No further description. Just before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews pick up stones to kill him. Why? Well, because they understood what Jesus was claiming. They knew their Torah, their Hebrew scriptures. They knew Exodus chapter 3. We just studied the third commandment on Thursday, Deuteronomy 5.11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We saw how, how that's about so much more than not swearing and not saying, oh my God. It includes that, um, but it includes so much more. But we saw first that God's name is Yahweh. It is, it is I am. That's how God reveals himself to Moses out of the burning bush. Moses says to God, well, when the people ask me, you know, who is this God? What is this? What is his name? What do I tell them? And God says, I am who I am. Say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Say to this people, our, our translation says the Lord. Well, literally, again, it says say to the people, Yahweh, another form of the verb to be. Say to the people, Yahweh, this is my Name forever. God's personal covenantal name, I am. He is the one who is. He is the self-existent, unchanging, immortal, invisible, unknowable God who is the creator and sustainer of all. And so when Jesus says, I am, he's looking back over a thousand years and saying, I am that. I am he. I am God himself. And then he, these seven times, takes that I am and attaches a, a predicate, a further descriptor to it. That one, he says, I am, period. Then seven other times he says, I am something. Do you know the seven yet? Do you have them memorized? Do you remember what they are all ultimately about? What I am is ultimately about. Let me read them quickly. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. 8.12, I am the light of the world. 10.7, I am the door. 10.11, I am the good shepherd. 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. Today, 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 15.1, I am the vine. No one has ever spoken like this man. No one has ever made the claims that this man made. And all of those claims are all about life. Every single one of those is about life. Because Christ is all about life, which we'll look at further in a moment. Jesus is I 
am. And that would and should be enough right there. I mean, what does it mean to be the one who is? Right? To be the one who is reality. Two of my favorite, most mind-expanding and mind-humbling verses, Colossians 1, 17. Here's why you stop wasting your time on TikTok and stupid little things that don't allow you to think, that are training you not to be able to think. Think about this, Colossians 1, 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus, Hebrews 1, 3. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. What can that mean? But this is what Christ is claiming. In claiming to be I am, in claiming to be God, he's claiming not only to be your creator and your redeemer, but your very moment-by-moment sustainer and upholder. Your every breath, your every thought, Your every word, your every minute owes its existence to him. All of it. The name I am is revealing what we call his aseity, his his independence. He depends upon nothing. Everything else. You entirely depend upon him. It's huge. God is not like us. Do you see what Jesus is doing here. This is what he is constantly doing. They are troubled. They are looking around at their life and around the world. They are facing great trouble, big trouble, and Jesus is saying, eyes on me. I am so much bigger than whatever that trouble, however big it is. I am bigger than the whole of reality. I'm the one who sustains it. Trust me, I am. And it's, so, it's, it's just so important that you learn to face your troubles in light of his identity. That thing that feels like the biggest thing in the world is nothing. Nothing compared to him. We've got to leave I am behind for a moment for now in the sermon. But listen, I'd encourage you never leave it behind. You never leave the identity of Christ behind. You are dependent. Your Christian life is dependent on learning who this Jesus is and starting to live as if he is actually who he claims to be. I am. Quickly, second, I mentioned the definite article. Again, you know what an article is. In grammar, an article is a determiner. An article comes before a noun, and it helps identify and quantify that noun. It's not complicated. There's two. There's the indefinite article, a or an. Many of you would say, chip is a great cookie. Fine. But I would clarify and correct you. Chip is the great cookie. Susan's shaking her head. She's wrong. Definite article. Definite article. I'm saying something more than you are saying. I am making an exclusive claim. It is not one great cookie among other great cookies. It is the great Cookie, definite article. And did you notice, as I ran through all seven of Christ's claims, that every single one of them includes the definite article. I am the bread of life. Seven statements, ten definite articles. For he is the the resurrection and the life. And then, of course, in ours, we get three separate definite articles. He is the way and the truth and the Life, not one among many. And here's where our false teacher friend from Duke goes so terribly and tragically and wickedly wrong. 
to stand up and claim to speak for Christ and to claim that Christ did not believe that he is the way is the definition of taking the Lord's name in vain. It is the definition of being a false teacher and of heresy. For this is the very heart and soul of our faith. Without this, we have nothing. For Christ is the very heart and soul of our faith. And he is so very clear that he is the way. And so listen, if you deny the exclusivity of Christ, you deny the Christ. You cannot be a Christian and love this Christ and deny his identity. And thus you do not know him and have not been saved by him. And thus do not have life. And so I can struggle and look at a church, 10,000 people, great, the man doesn't know Jesus. And the man needs to know Jesus. Because you cannot say that about Jesus and know Jesus. For he is the only way to the Father. And the Father is life. Jesus Christ is the and the only way to God. Because Jesus is the only one who is God. And only God can get you to God. That's the big main idea. Yes, he makes three claims here. He's the way and the truth and the life. But, but the way gets the, the prominence. Right? Thomas has asked, how can we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way. And then the next two further explain how he is the way. He is the way to God because he is the truth of God and because he is the life of God. And so point number three, we've, we've got to move here. Let's look at the truth. I'll run through these two quickly so we can apply at the end we're going to save a lot of our truth talk for chapter 17 verse 17 it's one of my favorite verses as christ prays for us he never prays for our earthly ease he never prays for a change in the troubling circumstances to come he prays sanctify them in the truth your word is truth that's a huge verse truth is so much more important than we think that it is. We are sanctified, made holy, and holy is happy. God is the perfectly holy one. He is the one who is perfectly and fully uh, happy and joyful. So holiness and happiness go together, and we're sanctified only in the truth. And it is the word. It's this word that we're like, I'm just a little bit too busy. I just can't quite find the time. No, it's this word that is the truth. Tim led some of the men well through the opening verses of 2 John yesterday morning. And John just dumps this word on us five times in rapid-fire succession in just four verses. John says he loves the church in truth, as do all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Son will be with us in truth. And John rejoices greatly to hear that the people are walking in truth. The truth. Boom, boom, boom. Truth, truth, truth. John seems to think that truth is important. Which is, of course, because Christ thinks that truth is important. It is how we are made holy. And not only that, he says, I am the truth. And this one, again, it's just more important than we think that it is. So much more important for your day-to-day life than you think that it is. Especially in a culture that increasingly denies even the existence of truth or, or the knowability of truth, that, that, that says alongside Pilate coming up, well, what, what is truth as truth sits there right in front of him? Okay, but it's not all that complicated. Truth is that which corresponds with reality. Truth is, is that which is. 
I don't have the time or the brain to effectively unpack this, but we've just seen that Christ is the one who is, who, who upholds and sustains reality. And as such, he very much is the truth. And there are deep and profound things here, great comfort here, because we have all of us to some degree swallowed the, the lie of, of materialism of our culture that says that the material is the most real. You don't need God to create all this. You don't need to believe in anything else other than, than matter. The only thing that really is real, that really matters, is matter. That which is made up of molecules. That which you can see and taste and touch. We're so prone to believe that the physical is the most real, and thus we're so prone to then seek our life in that which we have been convinced is the most real. The things of this earth. The, the physical almost exclusively. But here what Christ is doing is he's showing us that there's another reality. There is a more real, foundational, spiritual, heavenly reality. Again, it's going back to our first point. He's trying to fix our minds there on him, the truth, the foundation of everything else. The one on whom everything else depends. The one apart from which there is no truth. But most simply, in context... Christ is the truth as he is the one who fully and finally reveals God to us. All the way back in chapter 1, verse 14, we read, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's the Son, that's the word, he has made him known. Right, so Jesus is the only way to God because he's the only one who has seen God and can reveal God. Only God can truly know God. And thus we need him to come and reveal himself to us. And that is exactly what we have in Christ. He is the truth because he is the full and final word of and from God. And that means that you don't need any other words. You don't need to look for something more. You don't need more truth. What more could you want than Christ? What more could you want than God himself come to reveal himself to you? Christ is the truth. And so, again, in a way that I don't fully understand and I'm still trying to think through, in a way, truth is not just an idea. But it's ultimately a person. That which corresponds with reality is a person, Jesus Christ. And this, this may be just me, but I found this so helpful and important as, as I've realized how prone I still am sometimes to conceive of Christ largely as an abstract idea. And I'm seeking more to shift my conception of him and how I relate to him and respond to him from abstract idea to actual person. The person in whom I find everything. And so he is the truth. You can trust the truth. That's why trust is the solution to your troubled heart, because Christ is the solution to your troubled heart. He's the truth. Next one, quickly, he is the life. Jesus is the only way, because he's the truth of God and the life of God. And this one, like, this, this really is it, isn't it? Like this at least should be everything. But one of the things that I am most desperate to figure out how to communicate uh, to you and how to convince you of and myself is to care more about the most important things. 
about eternal things, to care more about your soul and the reality that that soul goes on into eternity. Surely, if that's true, which most of us would say that we believe, wouldn't we then give to that, to our souls and their state, far more attention than we do to this life and the temporary circumstances of it? I feel extra burdened by this right now. As Mike mentioned at the beginning, it's it's literally as I was working precisely on this point yesterday morning that I got the call from Jerry that Ruth's father, Mr. Jean Florent, died Friday night. He was here regularly. He was here just a couple of weeks ago. He was always very kind and encouraging to me. He's gone. I will not see him again in this life. And that makes me sad. Pray for the Whithowers, who are dealing with the loss of a father and a grandfather and a good one, by the grace of God. One of my great clients, I loved picking on him and picking on Jerry because they had four girls and I had five. Like, I got you. I got you guys. They're my superiors in every way. But I had one more girl than them. That was my one thing. And I, I don't know about you. I'm tired of death. We just buried Leroy two weeks ago. Nora, not too long before that. I'm still mourning the loss of Lydia. Eldon is very sick. My great aunt died two weeks ago. It's everywhere. Everywhere. And I said it at Leroy's funeral. I just do not understand. I don't understand how unbelievers deal with death. I don't get it. It is so terrible. It's a terror. It's a tyrant. And it's coming for every single one of us. Do we really believe that? Do we really live as if you could go to sleep tonight and not wake up? Then in the grand scheme of things, our death is just around the corner. It is in light of that fact. It is in the light of that which feels like this constant confrontation with death that we're dealing with. That Christ's words here just burst in as words of such needed and refreshing comfort. And I've said it before, death is coming for all of us. And this should be obvious, but the only solution to death is life. That's it. And here Christ says, I am the life. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Death only exists because of sin. Ephesians 2.1, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, all of us, every single person you're going to pass on the street today, everyone who was ever born apart from Christ was born dead, spiritually dead. For we were all born in sin and we just, we got right to that sinning as quickly as we possibly could. And sin, which is the rejection of the God of life, Sin, which is our attempt to dethrone and replace and kill the God of life, rightly deserves and demands death. But God, but the Son of God, but the gospel of God, good news. This Christ who is God, thus who is life, has come. In John 10.10, he tells us very explicitly that he has come that we may have life. And have it abundantly. He is, 1125, the resurrection and the life. That whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. How is that possible? 
only because of his departure. Only because of where he is telling his disciples he is going that they cannot follow. Because of the place that he is going to prepare. And remember, the place is already perfect. Nothing needs to be prepared in that perfect place. What needs to be prepared is the way to that place. And as he is the way, and as it is our sin and our death that bars us from the place and that prevents us from going on that way, the very reason he has come is to bear that sin and die that death for us that we might live. So that Ruth's father, though he has died, yet now he lives. So that death could be swallowed up in victory. The very death of death in the death of Christ. That this is how Christ is the life. As the God of life come to take the place of dead sinners and die in their place. And in so doing, giving them life. Spiritual life. Which no physical death can even touch. We are born again by the grace of God regenerated by the grace of God. And how often Christ repeats this so that we might be comforted by this. Remember, we've just seen it. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Right before that, three times we've seen, Christ is troubled, Christ is troubled, Christ is troubled. He's always troubled by death. His impending death. Death should be the thing that troubles you. Is your sin, is death, are the things that trouble you those things? Or again, the things of this world. Little, comparatively minor things. Death should be the thing that troubles you, and yet Christ says, let not your hearts be troubled, even in the face of the most troubling thing. Because he has already been troubled for you. And so he says, in 10, back to the good shepherd, verse 11, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life. For the sheep. He says in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It's because He is life. He is the life. And when the life submitted itself to our death, that death could not hold Him. And He rose again victorious three days later, freeing us. From death's grip and power. And in him that death cannot hold us either. It cannot hold Ruth's father. Tabitha's grandfather. And as we here are sad. Because we have experienced great loss. He is there. And he is glad. Because he has experienced great gain. For he knows the Christ. Who is life in a way that we can barely even begin to comprehend. That's what happens to death in Christ. You know what we just sang? Did you pay attention to what we just sang? Death, no more for us to fear. How can we say that? It's the most fearful thing. Only because of Christ. Do you know him? What a savior. He's so much bigger and better than we think. Do you see how just maybe he might have the right to say to us, in the midst of our troubles, whatever they are, he might be the one person who has the right to say to us and come to us and say, let not your hearts be troubled. Look at who he is. Look at what he has done.
And point number five, trust him. Here's the only right response. Here's the struggle. Here is the whole of the Christian life learning to do this. He is so worthy of your trust. That's, that's what faith is. Trust in the infinitely and ultimately only trustworthy one. Trust him. That is, that, listen, that's the only hope for your troubled heart. It's the only hope. That's the only hope for your sinful soul. And that's what he means by the end of verse 6. Again, he clarifies for us. Making sure. Just in case this wasn't clear. Just in case there could be any misunderstanding here. Just in case there possibly could be some guy that would stand up 2,000 years later and say, I'm not the only way. Let me be clear. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that through, remember how important prepositions are? That through is faith. Through the God-given grace of faith that, that connects us to the Christ who is life. And listen, this is why Christ must be the only way. This is why we must never shy away from this, never apologize for this, never minimize this. For Christ is the only one who has done something about our sin problem. And this is why to deny that Christ is the only way is to deny Christ and to cut yourself off from the only way. Listen, I, I hate my sin. And one of the things that came most clear to me, late college, uh, that something had changed and that God had gotten a hold of my heart and made me new was this, this shift from my love of my sin to, my, to just this, 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 this hatred for this sin that lingers and remains. Listen, you are never going to appreciate who Christ is and what he has done until you feel the weight of your sin and see it for what it is. I'm so thankful that in Christ my sin is dealt with fully and finally. As far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103. Psalm 103 again, he, God does not deal with me according to my sins because Christ has dealt with my sins. Because God has dealt with Christ according to my sins. There's, there's no other sacrifice there's no other substitute for sin. There's no one else who has or could do what Christ has done. And thus, Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Why, why are all these young people here? Why, why have all these young people come and given up their weekends to be in New York City? Why, why is Sam and the, the men given their entire lives to evangelism because of this fact because they believe this fact there's salvation in no one else and Romans 10 how, how will they believe unless they have heard you know, there's no point in doing anything you should all go home if this is not true but Christ is very clear no one comes to the Father except through me we are saved only by him but we are saved completely Saved from sin and death. And listen, if that's true, if by the grace of God that, that's true for you, what comfort is there to be found here for your troubled heart? Whatever the circumstances are. Forget all the things that feel like they're going wrong. Forget all the earthly circumstances that are not as you would choose them. You deserved hell. You deserved lost and lies and death. But in Christ you got the way and the truth and the life, you got, a, you got a heaven, an eternity. Let not your hearts be troubled. Trust this Christ. 
Did anyone go read the, the Spurgeon sermon on Psalm 13? Probably not. Um, but it's so good, isn't it? Spurgeon says, oh, that I could shout that word loud as a thousand thunders speaking at once. Trust. O soul, the way of the law is obey a hard word, that which you cannot, with which you cannot comply, for you are too weak. But the gospel way is trust, trust, trust. When you have learned that way, you shall afterwards learn how to obey, and you shall obey through the trusting. But the first thing is trust. Whatever your trouble, the first thing is trust him. Trust him. Trust him and live. Listen, I sometimes struggle, like I know, sometimes I struggle in comforting people in difficult circumstances. Because again, I know that I, sometimes I feel, it feels false and hollow to say some of these things. Because I know that I'm unbelievably blessed. You know, I understand that. I don't know why. My wife is amazing. I cannot describe to you how thankful I am for her and how much I owe to her. Practically perfect in every way, if you're a Mary Poppins fan. Listen. She will not, and she cannot satisfy my soul. Perfect wife cannot satisfy my soul. She will not, and she cannot give me life and ultimate happiness. My girls, I cannot describe how much I love and enjoy them. They are so much. I don't want to do anything except be with them. But they, even all five of them together, will not, and they cannot satisfy my soul. I could build this church to 10,000 people. I could write that all-time bestseller. I could run a four-minute mile, a two-hour marathon. I could retire young and live a life of leisure in a house that is somehow both on the beach and in the mountains. <laughs> They're my daydreams. <laughs> but listen, none of it, none of it would or could satisfy my soul. None of it. Whatever that thing is for you, whatever you've set your mind on a thing and said, this is it, and I'll be fine. It's a lie if that thing is not Christ. None of that. For my soul was made for something bigger and better than all of it. My soul, your soul is, to be, is made to be satisfied with the one thing, the one person. But it's the biggest and the best thing. It is the infinite and eternal God whom heaven and earth cannot contain, with whom the greatest pleasures and the highest joys of this life cannot compare. Again, Peter steals all my stuff, but I come back to Psalm 16 again and again and again. This is what I am striving to believe. Verse 8, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. No, whatever happens, I shall not be shaken. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. We just saw how heaven is a, is a world of joy because God is the perfectly satisfied and joyful one. And when we come to know him and learn what it actually means to commune with him, we find gladness of heart and joy. Verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I'm fighting to believe and live as if that were actually true. As if Christ truly was life. And if full joy was to be found in him. So stop. Stop killing yourself and making yourself miserable by looking for that anywhere else. Give yourself to this Christ. Throw yourself at him. Pursue him as if you believed. 
that what you are looking for in the things of the earth are actually found in him. He is the only way, but it's a good way. It's life, and it's joy, and it's peace. Trust him, and he will not disappoint you. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, help us. I always preach better than I practice. It's always easier said than done. Father, help us to trust you. Father, I pray for the troubled hearts in this room today. I pray that you would minister much comfort to them. I pray that like Christ here, that you would draw their attention to you. Remove their gaze from their circumstances and fix it on the Christ to his life. Father, teach us how to actually live if what we say that we believe is true. Father, make us a glad and happy and joyful people, even in the difficulties and the troubles of life. Father, we thank you that death has been defeated. Thank you that Mr. Fleuron is with you in your presence where we just saw his fullness of joy and pleasure forevermore. Father, comfort the Whithowers with this truth. Draw them to Jesus. Be great comfort to their souls. And Father, I pray that we would love Jesus Christ. I pray that we would grow in our affection for him. I pray that we would grow in our desire to know him and our desire for others to know him. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.